Hi, everyone. Um, this is Wendy Rogovin with Big Tent. And Big Tent is a national women-led pro-democracy organization promoting civic engagement, education, and activism. And tonight, we are really thrilled to welcome David Pepper to Big Tent. Um, as you all know, he's the author of Laboratories of Autocracy, as well as four amazing political thrillers we were just talking about, and maybe a fifth at any minute. Um, and he's also a lawyer, political activist, former elected official, adjunct professor, painter, and until last year served as the chairman of the Ohio Democratic Party. In that role, he engaged in a number of fights and extensive litigation over voter suppression and election laws. So David will start us off tonight with a presentation followed by questions. If you haven't already done so, put your questions in the chat now or as he's as things go along, and we will get to them in the second half of the program. Thanks, uh, David. Thank you. It's it's so nice to be with you. I'm really honored that you've asked me to speak to this this great group. Uh, and um, I I have different lengths of presentations. This is going to be one of my shorter versions, so I'm going to cut right to the chase and really look forward to a conversation. If you've read my book a little bit, this will be redundant. If you haven't, it'll cover a lot of ground. Uh, but if you have read it, this is a slightly different take, so I also think it won't be too redundant for those of you who've read the book. So I want to start off with um, a, um, can everyone see this? I want to start off with, and again, this, my goal is to speak beyond just one party. Um, it's, it's sometimes hard to do this when it comes to, to democracy because it's not a both sides issue. But I want to start off with sort of a, a an approach that might strike you as a little different, but you'll, you'll see where it's going when I'm done. We think most of people in politics have sort of come to this sort of assumption and understanding that we are in the middle of a political battle between red and blue. And it's this sort of, it's this sort of unitary battle between red and blue. And that's the, that's the, um, that's the political sort of, um, you know, scene in, in America. And I want to use this presentation and, and, and set up a conversation where I think seeing it as a single battle is actually a, a real problem because the two sides at this point actually are engaging in such different battles that I think it's much more appropriate and frankly uh, conservative in a way and smart to see that, that the battles are so different that they really are two battles. And one side's failure to see what the other battle is, is really costing that side. And that is the pro-democracy side. So the side on the left of this slide, I want to describe their battle for a second. I think it'll be quite familiar. This side generally assumes democracy is intact. This side, I'd say, is largely Democrats, but also the mainstream media, uh, independents. This side also is actually confident that it represents the majority viewpoint of Americans on most issues. You know, Roe v. Wade, for example, is a very majority, strong majority mainstream view, being for a woman's right to choose, um, being for dealing with climate change, common sense gun reform, a middle class based at economics versus trickle down, don't ban books. These are all things that are actually quite popular. Sometimes that gets lost in the coverage, but a, any poll would show you those are mainstream majority viewpoints. And so this side actually kind of assuming that democracy is intact and stable and, and correctly assuming that it represents a majority on most issues, this side's political battle is actually a very simple one. Go win elections. Go, go grab election outcomes 
and then implement those Main Street viewpoints whenever you can. This side, with those assumptions in mind and that battle in mind that their battles to win elections, quickly settles on a federal strategy. And that means they you know, win the Senate, win the House, win the presidency. That's most of the attention. That's what most of the media covers. It's all about federal because if you win those seats, you can push that agenda through. And this side, of course, very quickly uh, then settles on a swing state strategy. When the swing states need to get those federal majorities and you get yourself an election win and like in 20 or 08, you go get all that stuff done. And this side gets especially excited in, in presidential years. And like in 20, when this side wins those federal battles for its battle over election outcomes, it celebrates like it's won everything. That's sort of, I'd say, almost the pro-democracy center left view of politics that the media also covers that way. Here's the problem. The other side's political battle is very different. And this isn't, I don't want to throw all Republicans into this, but there is a strand on the far right that actually has a very different political battle that is pursuing. And I think for the most part, people are still generally blind to this battle. This side's battle on the right side of this screen one, it's anchored in an, in an understanding that democracy can be subverted. It is not intact. It is not stable. That's not our history. Our history shows that democracy has been subverted many times, at least a full, diverse democracy. And look around the world, same thing. Democracy can actually be subverted. And the second thing about this side is, this side also understands, and this part is a little edgy, but I, but, but I think you'll see it's the case, that it actually on its its worldview for the most part is a minority worldview. What it's pushing for generally is not supported by a majority of Americans. In fact, many of its core issues are deeply unpopular. You know, ro getting rid of Roe v. Wade, no exceptions, is toxic. Doing nothing about climate change is unpopular. Banning books is something twenty percent of Americans agree with. C gun laws that are arming teachers and putting guns everywhere, no background checks, about 10% of Americans support that. This side understands that. Um, so this side understanding it's, it's generally standing with a minority or deep minority on its viewpoints. They understand that if they repeat, if all they do is compete on a fair election space year after year, they will lose. They understand that. That's why Mitch McConnell doesn't want Lindsey Graham talking about abortion because he knows it's a losing issue. Look at Kansas, what happened there? Uh, that's why Mitch McConnell doesn't want Rick Scott talking about getting rid of Social Security. That is not an economic winning message. So this side, understanding that it's most of his issues are unpopular, understanding it would lose on a repeated, you know, equal, you know, level Democratic playing field, chooses actually quite a different strategy than the side on the left. Its strategy is to avoid those fair elections as much as possible. Avoid what happened in Kansas. In other words, and this is going to seem pretty you know, uh, blunt, but subvert democracy. Their battle is over democracy itself, not over election outcomes in a fair democracy. And that shapes everything else they're doing. And this gets to the Laboratories of Autocracy book. A, a, a group of people that wants to put into place a minority worldview over time and have it in place does not battle over uh, federal elections, although those are important. It chooses a different playing field. It chooses states and state houses. And that's really why the book is Laboratories of Autocracy. That's what those 
states are, are, are serving as. And as to quote the old Clinton quote, it's the state house is stupid. Why is that? Why states? And by the way, this is sort of the broader contours of the agenda that I'm talking about, a, a pretty unpopular agenda that would never get done in Washington. It's just, again, Mitch McConnell doesn't want to talk about some of these issues. Why state houses? Why is that the place to go if that's your battle? Because state houses have control almost over every issue that we all talk about in politics, economy, healthcare, education, you name it. But also importantly, over every issue that we contest with passion in politics, a woman's right to choose, what's taught in schools, healthcare, climate change, gun laws, all of that goes through states and state houses, frankly, far more and far more often than we ever see it legislated in Congress. Secondly, state houses also, and this gets lost sometimes, they're the first, they write the rules on democracy far more than Congress. Every state determines who votes, how they vote, when they vote, how long they can vote for. Can they use a drop box? How many? How do they register? How do they get knocked off the rolls? Usually those rules are intact going forward. It's the state that determines that. And that often shapes the electorate. Number two, these states also draw district lines. They can determine if you want a gerrymandered system, meaning no competition, everyone wins no matter what, or they can choose to have a competitive system where you actually have competitive races. In the wrong hands, they will choose the former and lock in, and this happens in Ohio and all over, basically make it so no one can lose. And, and th that power has gotten so extreme, and I won't go through this in great detail because I don't have time, I go through in the book, and, and um, they're so powerful at doing this, the, the gerrymandering part, that even in, and they've done this in numerous states, especially beginning of 11, even in states where Democrats are winning the majority of the votes for state house by a good amount, in 18, for example, Republicans control the state house by two to one majority in Wisconsin or by decisive majority of these other states. A, a group that represents a minority is locked into the majority of that state house. It's a pretty incredible thing when you think about it. It's the kind of thing that Orban would admire. Wow, you're, you mean you represent a majority, minority, but you get to run the state house with a supermajority? That's not really what we think of as representative democracy, but that's what state houses have, been, have begun to do. But it's even worse than that. And I'll go through this for a second because this explains the extremism that's exploding. Not only do they get a majority they haven't earned, but in states like Ohio, they've essentially drawn districts where almost not a single member of their majority ever faces a real election. These are people in power devoid of democracy. This is the average margin of victory in the 62 seats they've controlled in Ohio for most of the decade. You'll see 50 of the 62 averaged a 20% margin of victory over 10 years. So 38 of them, a 30% margin of victory or more. These aren't even races anyone thinks about if you're the incumbent. And the next 12 seats to get to 62 are 10% or margin of victory or more. So it's not only that you're getting a majority you don't deserve, you're getting a situation where not almost not a single politician in the system ever worries about an election for their entire career. And that explains why the extremism is running amok. In a world of accountability, we assume that the incentives align with good public service, right? Hey, I got to get reelected. I better tell my voters about the great public outcomes I've generated. I better be mainstream and non-extremist because if I'm an extremist in a competitive district, I will lose. 
It turns, and that's what I faced. I was a county commissioner in a 50-50 county. I knew I needed to improve things and I knew I shouldn't be an extremist or I'd lose to the other side. Once you're in a world where you are guaranteed that general election outcome as all these people are, public outcomes no longer matter, do they? You get reelected even if your wages fall, your schools fall apart, your infrastructure, it doesn't matter. So we have a disconnect and a decoupling of public outcomes from re-election, a very dangerous decoupling. You also have now not an incentive to be a mainstream person, but an incentive to be extremist. That's how you avoid the next primary, is you don't want to get outflanked by someone more extreme in your party. Um, one other incentive that is now happening, once you've committed yourself as a politician to a course of bad public outcomes, and by the way, one reason you, you get bad public outcomes is because certain private interests who want public dollars or good, or, or let's say no regulation, they want outcomes that undermine the public. They have more control over your future than your own voters do. So we see in these states this meltdown of public outcomes and nothing anyone can do about it. But once you've committed yourself to a course of poor public outcomes and extremism, the one thing that you know that would cost you power in the end was if you ever faced a fair election because you couldn't defend your extremism, you couldn't defend those outcomes, you would lose. So the other thing that's happening in these states is a nonstop undermining of democracy through gerrymandering and voter suppression, because once you're on that path of being extremist, once you've sent a 10-year-old rape victim from Ohio to Indiana because she can't get an abortion here, you would not win an election defending that in a 50-50 district, and you know it, so you better keep gerrymandering. Um, so the problem is, um, this combination ends up making, to go back to this original slide, if your goal is to undermine, I'm, I'm sorry, is to impose a minority worldview over time where it sticks, those state houses on, uh, become the perfect place. If you control them, you can do it because the politicians in those state houses can pass toxic agendas, but through gerrymandering and other things cannot be held accountable. So that's sort of this two battles framework. So I'll ask you before getting to what we do about it all. If these two sides each fight the battle I've described, one side in swing districts for federal races, the other side battling out to control states where they can then shape democracy and ran through, ramp through their agenda. And once they win a state, they lock it down through gerrymandering suppression. Who's going to win the battle over time? It's pretty obvious. By the way, the reason I was a couple minutes late was I was driving my son home from a soccer practice. He's eight years old. He would say, Dad, you mean one side's always on offense? From his soccer experience, he'd say, Dad, that side's always going to win. And the side on the right here is always on offense, battling democracy itself in the states, and the side on the left is not. The bottom line is, if these battles play out over time, as we are seeing, even when we think we won in 20, we're not winning because our battle is not on offense in states. It's basically the federal level and only in some states. So once you lay out this and see this, it may be sobering, but it's also very clarifying about what a pro-democracy group like yours and so many others I talked to need to do. What do we need to do? We need to see the battle for what it really is. Not a short battle over the next cycle for a few federal seats. We are in a battle for democracy itself as old as our country. That's the battle we're in, and the battle's front line are states and state houses and other state-level positions that control democracy. We must see that clearly, more clearly than we have, 
and we must engage that battle where it's happening. And once you see that, I hope, although it's sobering, it's also clarifying. The first thing you understand that when you see you're in a battle for democracy is that's a long battle. It's not only about a few months of getting energized in a federal election year. This is the same battle the suffragists fought so that, you know, the folks in Seneca Falls fought so their great-great-granddaughters could vote in 1920. John Lewis fought this battle. In a more recent example, who saw the battle for democracy as a long-game battle? Stacey Abrams. She understood in Georgia, and I, I went to law school with her, so I've watched her this whole time. And yes, I clearly skipped some of the classes she must have taken. But Stacey understood that the battle for Georgia was a long battle. She didn't judge her success or lay out her game plan on what would win the next federal seat for the Senate, for example. She knew all the things that had to be done, and she did them over time as a minority leader of the state house, uh, as a nonprofit leader, as a governor candidate. Even when she didn't win in 18, she didn't quit. She said we made progress because she knew more people were registered. She knew more people voted for a black woman than ever before in Georgia. She saw progress because she had a long game mindset. And two years later, we saw how right she was. We have to see that we are in a long game. So the strategies you build and that we all build have to be about long game strategies and long game measurements and assessments of how we're doing. Not simply, did we win this federal seat or that federal seat? Of course, we want to win every federal seat. But as we learn from 20, if we only win that and don't work on the other things that I'm going to talk about, we're not winning. We're, we're at best treading water and at worst losing ground, even when we thought we've won. Number two, one, uh, number two conclusion. Once you see that you're in a battle for democracy itself, you see what a disastrous mistake it is to only fight for democracy in a dozen or so states that happen to be federal swing states. It's, a, it's terrible for a number of reasons. First, in our own constitution, it's clear. Every single American should live in a state that is a functioning democracy at the state level. And when you don't, it's a danger. That's why the founders worried about it and guaranteed what I just said, uh, the, the, that we would guarantee a democracy in states. So it's just the right thing to do, but it's actually far more than just the right thing to do. A, you never know where you might win unless you compete everywhere. And when they're as extreme as they are, you have wins like Kansas. You have wins like Alaska. But if you're only looking at a few federal swing states, you don't know that. You don't even know where you might win. You don't know where they've gotten too extreme for their own people, and they're getting too extreme all over the place. Number two, if you don't even make any noise in 30 or 35 states, that extremism explodes. And it's exploding right now because we are applying a federal swing state mindset to a 50-state attack on democracy. And we are, we are literally seeing extremism go nuts all over in states that only a few years ago seemed pretty reasonable. Well, if only one side's talking, that extremism is going to happen. Number three, and I'm going to be very quick here, so I, I respect the, the 730 window. Same thing within states. We have to run in all districts of these states. This sounds over the top, I know. It's not for reasons I'll explain, but when you allow dozens of extremists to pass the craziest laws that are unpopular, and then you don't even run anyone against them the next November, or, they, or the people who run have so little money they might as well not be running, extremism explodes. It also leads to the lack of transparency. One of the reasons that state houses are the greatest place to attack democracy is no one knows anything about them. 
They don't know what's going on in these places. They don't know who their state rep is. They don't know what these places are doing. Well, that problem gets 10 times worse if no one's running against half these people because we don't prioritize it. We have to run in every corner of states like Ohio, and we have to be smart enough. It's not either or. But right now, if you follow the money, almost all the money goes to a few U.S. Senate candidates. Even though Amy McGrath running against Mitch McConnell, $100 million. I'm not saying that Amy McGrath shouldn't have support, but I would make a modest proposal. Take $20 million of those dollars, share it with everyone running for the state house across this country, and you're going to win a bunch of state house seats. We have to be smarter about communicating to our large donors, but also our grassroots donors. If we're in a battle for democracy, we've got to spread where we support candidates far more than just the six or seven Senate races we all know about every two years. And that includes not just swing state house races, but enough support so people are running and we are value people running everywhere. There are millions of people in almost every state right now, larger states, that will literally not have a, sta a contested state house race. So that's millions of people who will never be told, oh, you have an extremist in your state rep. You could have voted them out, but we didn't run. So number two is run everywhere. Number three is run within states with the priority on the state house, which shapes all the power I've talked about. Number four is this is so much bigger than Donald Trump. We make a mistake when we make this all about never Trump. Of course, we want to get rid of Trump. I mean, I do at least. I assume most on this call do, maybe not. But this began before Donald Trump ever ran for president. If you read my book and you look at the history, if Donald Trump had admitted he lost on, on two, in 2020, it would have continued. They still would have banned water at the polls in Georgia. They still would have gone after drop boxes. And if he were locked up tomorrow for January 6th or classified documents, the attack on democracy would continue. When we make it about Trump, we are giving cover, artificial cover to a whole lot of other people who are attacking democracy who don't sound or look at all like Donald Trump. And in some cases are far more effective at attacking democracy than he is. Um, and when we say never Trump, we had what happened in 20. A whole lot of people voted for Joe Biden and then voted Republican the rest of the way. And many of the people they voted for are the very people who did phony audits in Arizona, banned drop boxes in Georgia and Texas, and gerrymandered Ohio. The teams have to be, are you for a robust democracy or are you not? And if you're a Republican who's for those things, wonderful. We're on the same team. We can argue about our disagreements later, but let's stand up democracy. And I don't care who you are, if you're not for a robust democracy, you're not on the team, even if you look and sound nothing like Donald Trump. Last thing, and I know you're doing this already, I believe once you see that you're in a battle for democracy itself, by the way, my book goes through 30 steps. I'm giving sort of five as an overview. Once you see you're in a battle for democracy, my hope is we all get inspired to do more than we think we need to do to save democracy. And I, these footprints are here for a reason. I, my analogy is we all have a footprint of influence. Big tent and your members, enormous footprint. And what I would challenge all of us to think about is beyond our volunteer time and the dollars we give to candidates, what else could we do to lift democracy? I'll give an example that will open your mind to this. When Sherrod Brown was Secretary of State, he convinced McDonald's to put on every single tray and McDonald's a voter registration form. Now that's lifting democracy. We have a doctor's group in Ohio that has on their, on their doctor um, you know, ID a QR code that every patient can use to register to vote if they scan it. That's lifting your footprint for democracy. 
Um, I convinced a bunch of restaurants in 20 in the pandemic that when people came to take out delivery because they couldn't go to the restaurant and later when they back opened, give them voter registration or early vote applications. That's and they love doing it. Um, if you know someone who's a mayor or city council, I was a city council member once. I didn't think of this. I should have. Every rec center, every health clinic, every public housing facility, register, 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 get people voting early, inform them about the election. We should all, you know, if you're partisan, help your candidates you like, make sure you have a candidate running every district. But if you're not that partisan, there's still many things you could be doing. And my worry is we usually don't do them because we don't even think about it. And so I'd ask everyone on this call, I'd ask Big Tent more broadly, challenge your members What's your footprint of influence? Are you on the are you on the board of a homeless shelter? Are they registering voters? Uh, the food bank, you name it. These are the very people being purged in a lot of these states. They're the very people not voting. There's no a nonprofit. Not only is there no reason not to do it, they should be doing it as part of their civic mission to get the people they are serving back into democracy. So I go. There's a lot of specifics in the book, but we have to get people to think about. And the reason I say this is. And this sounds a little harsh, but it's true. The scale of the attack on democracy is enormous. It's a lot of money and it's full time, folks. The scale saving democracy cannot just be a small volunteer effort or it will get out, out, you know, numbered quick. We all as citizens, to use that RFK quote about a ripple building into a wave, we all have to figure out how we find more ways that we can each scale up our battle for democracy. And collectively, I think it's enough. But if we don't do that against this full-time operation, we're in trouble. And I'll just close by saying, this is what, why don't we have it here? This is what John Lewis, this is what the civil rights leaders were all talking about when they said, you know, we all have to get in this. And that democracy is not some sort of end state. It's a continuous struggle forward. We're in the same struggle this country's been in our in centuries. I hope once we see it that way, we can see that, we're doing some things okay. We got to do better. We got to have a long game. We got to do it more broadly, more deeply. We got to define it more broadly. And we all can play a much bigger role in it than we ever think we can. So with that, I will stop talking. I think I got right at 730 and would love to open it up um, for questions. Thanks so much, David. That was that was fascinating. Uh, I have a lot of questions for you and some of them coming in from the chat. Um, one, I'm going to start with the questions from the chat. Mary Himes asked, if Trump isn't the leader of this movement, who is McConnell or DeSantis or perhaps Alec or? Great question. So I, this comes up all the time. Who are these people? McConnell knows this better than anybody. You watch McConnell. When he tells Lindsey Graham to stop talking at abortion, it's because he knows they can do it at the state houses without any controversy and without risk of losing. When he tells Rick Scott not to bring up their economic agenda, it's because he knows how unpopular the agenda is. He doesn't want to talk about it. He, when I watch him, and by the way, what does Mitch McConnell tell his members? The one thing, this goes to Sue Mandel's question. The one thing he will never allow them to stray on is voting rights in states. Because he knows that it's the attack in states that are letting them do everything else they're doing through states. Look at Mitch McConnell when he was majority leader, when Trump was president and they had the House. Did they do anything but tax cuts? No, they didn't do anything. Why? By the way, I get a little fired up. I apologize if I seem a little spazzy. 
They didn't do anything because they do it through the states where no one's paying attention. Almost their entire agenda is through states. So McConnell, I wouldn't call him the leader of it, but he knows the plan. I, I kind of now call not to make my not to tout my own uh, my own book title. I'll call it for shorthand the Laboratories of Autocracy Strategy, and Mitch McConnell plays it perfectly. Why does he not want to have a filibuster for judges? Because he needs those judges to uphold the laws coming out of states. Think about it this way. So we must have a filibuster. To, they, they, they insist on a filibuster to stop the Senate and House from stopping these state attacks, but they don't want a filibuster for judges. The, um, and I'm sorry if this seems overly partisan, Josh. I, I literally, like, I, I, I understand that I can seem that way. Read the book. You'll see that I'm trying to describe this as factual as I can. But McConnell understands that, that judges are the best shield for what these state houses are doing. And he understands that any voting rights laws that were pushed forward would actually crush this laboratories of autocracy strategy. And that so he plays it well. What I would say, though, the commonality, the commonality of the different groups are that they all sort of perceive that their viewpoint is a minority viewpoint that would not succeed in a robust democracy. So be it sort of the, uh, the, the far right strand of the religious right. They understand that if you had a straight up vote on on, on abortion bans, no exceptions, they would lose everywhere. There is a strand of white supremacy in our country going back centuries. This is part of that, I hate to say. Obama winning was very much like Southern blacks being registered in the 1870s. There's always been a fierce backlash to that. That's our history. This is part of that. And there are business interests like the Koch brothers and Alec who understand very well that an intense trickle-down approach is not popular. So I don't think there's one leader, but I think the different groups out there, the, the ones choosing this laboratories of autocracy strategy do understand that in, if they had a regular repeated election on their viewpoints on a fair playing field, they would not win. And so they all kind of gravitate towards this strategy. Um, so next, let's look at uh, Sue's question. If we grow the Senate and keep the House and get a Voting Rights Act, how much of this will be addressed by that? It, it, I think there will be a long struggle over all this, but if you go through my 30 steps in my book, I think steps two and three are these. The Senate has an obligation to act. I, I, I worry that going back, you know, as we all get a little older and look back, if they do not pass the protections that are in front of them and allow the window to close, and if they lose the Senate or the House, we will regret it for the rest of our lives. I really believe that. Um, I really do believe that. Um, so they could, and it's right in front of them. And I, I, by the way, one, one hidden hero right now is Amy Klobuchar. She understands all of this and she's written these laws to address it. She, um, what's in front of the Senate would really ratchet down ability to do partisan gerrymanders. That may, if, you, if you listen to anything I've said today, the single most important tool in the Laboratories of Autocracy playbook is the gerrymandering of state houses. Congress is, a, I don't like the gerrymandering there either, but, Cong, uh, but Congress is sort of secondary. Most of the attack goes through states and it's because state houses are gerrymandered. This would stop that. Um, there's a lot of protections on voting rights. It would also stop states from attacking democracy. So to Sue's question, I talk about how important state house is, 
But the federal government is the single most powerful entity that could stop all this. And I wish they would act. I, I say this politely. I'm, I've been friends with Kirsten Cinema a long time. Of course, I sent her my book. I sent her articles. I texted her. Like, I, I, I am sick that they have not seen that this is the most urgent thing they could be doing. They should have made a deal at the beginning of the term with Joe Manchin, for example. If you want infrastructure, you must protect voting rights. They go together. And the one other thing, once you realize, and this goes back to maybe what Josh said, if, if it seems overly partisan, what I'm talking about is embedded in the Constitution. If you read my book, Article 4, Section 4 of the Constitution has the guarantee clause, which is overlooked. And it says, the United States shall guarantee to all states in the union a Republican form of government. And what they meant by Republican form of government then was what we think as small d democratic governance, that every state should reflect the will of the people of that state. This is an oath that every senator takes, that they will uphold a guarantee that all 50 states now will have a Republican form of government. I say all this to say, if it's in the Constitution, there is no legal, um, there's no legal excuse that the filibuster should be used to stop legislation to protect the Constitution itself. James Madison would say, wait a second, are you not reading the language of the Constitution? You took an oath to uphold democracy in states, and the filibuster has no business as a matter of the law standing away that. So I believe 50 votes, Sue, should allow these bills to pass. If they don't get it done the next few months, we don't think they will, and they do win the Senate and House, it should be the first thing they pass if they win, and we should all be demanding it as loudly as we can. It would make a massive difference. Can you walk us through how a guarantee clause case might arise? Here's what's interesting. And this is this gives extra power to what I just said. It wouldn't arise because the Supreme Court for a century has said the guarantee clause is a political question, meaning it is within the power of Congress not to be reviewed by the court. So you can't sue. People have tried to do this. I actually you know, I actually think you should be able to do this. People have sued a state like Wisconsin and said, you're so gerrymandered, you're not a, you don't meet the guarantee clause. And the court has said, that's not a valid suit. The power of the guarantee clause is with Congress. So for example, after the Civil War, after the Civil War, Congress could determine whether or not to allow a state back into the union. And they use their guarantee clause power, okay, you pass the test. You are a Republican form of government. My attitude would be, especially, by the way, if, if the court goes with this insane independent state legislative theory, my attitude would, of Congress would be, and this would be fully exercising the guarantee clause power that the court says is theirs, we are going to start to make clear standards about what a Republican form of government in a state looks like. And it can't look like a hyper-gerrymandered state. And we're simply going to pass those laws and we're going to do it pursuant to the guarantee clause. And by the way, Supreme Court, you're the ones who said that can't be reviewed. I believe that it's it, so it's a power for the Congress to act upon. It's a power that they took an oath to uphold. And I think if I were the, going back to Sue's question, and they've done this to some degree, I would ground the new Voting Rights Act that's in front of them in the guarantee clause to say we are doing this not simply about a voting rights but we are doing this to guarantee a Republican form of government in all these states. 
and, and I'll say this in closing, and I don't say this lightly. If you read my book or you look closely, most of these states that I'm talking about no longer actually reflect the guarantee clause. The, the, here's an example. A 10-year-old victim of rape being shipped to Indiana because the Ohio politicians will not allow her to get abortion care is an example. Most Ohioans support Roe v. Wade. Probably under 10% of them agree that that girl should go to Indiana. But it's the law of the state and no one can stop it. At some point, that's not a representative government anymore. That is a gerrymandered government with the extremists I showed you early on locked in through gerrymandering so they can never lose. That does not meet a definition, I believe, in a Republican form of government where the will of the people is sovereign. And I think once you have a level of, of non-democracy to that extreme, you really are getting to a place where even the founders would say, this is, this is what we worried would happen. I mean, they, they literally wrote the guarantee clause and James Madison wrote this in the Federalist Papers. They were worried that exactly what I've described, that state houses, because they're, they're more corruptible, and there's a lot of corruption in everything I'm talking about here, they're more corruptible, they're lower profile, they worry that for the very reasons I've described, state houses would be the back door to undermine democracy. And that's exactly what's happening right now. So I think the Congress, Joe Biden, you know, Elizabeth Warren, you name it, should actually see the guarantee clause as a huge source of power to get democracy back in states. And it's one reason, again, it's the first thing you should be doing are these voting rights bills as opposed to after everything else. So speaking of other things coming first, the Electoral Count Reform Act looks like it's going to pass. Yeah. And could you talk to us a little bit about what the implications of that are? What are the risks? What are the challenges? Yeah, I mean, it, it's a good thing overall. It clarifies so that, that, you know, what Trump wanted Pence to do can't be done. I think it sets up more, more standards so that Congress can't try and undo what's in the states. So that's good. But going back to Mitch McConnell, what it doesn't do is address the heart of the problem in the states, where democracy is being attacked. That's what they want to do. I'll give an example. And I don't, I don't want to diminish its importance. It's important. One thing, though, one thing, and when I call the book Laboratories of Autocracy, I'm not, that's not just a cute title. They're always learning from what they're doing. And they actually are always getting better at it. So the first thing I'd caution, they're not going to do January 6th again. It's not going to look like what Trump died to do. It's going to look different. So although it's good to stop what happened the last time, let's also be very clear, that's not what would happen the next time. They'll try and do it long before it ever gets to January 6, 2025. We should clean it up if we can. If there's bipartisan support for that, wonderful. My bigger worry, though, continues to be that democracy is being undermined in the states. And it'd be a, the example is this, and a lot of, I have Robert Cairo right behind me. If in the 1960s, in response to a massive concern about the, the suppression of black voters in the South, they would have said, well, we're not going to deal with all that suppression. We're not going to get rid of literacy tests. We're not going to get rid of everything else. But we will ensure that the results of those Southern states elections will be counted accurately for presidential election purposes. And we would have said, well, that's wonderful. But if the underlying election in the state itself is flawed, that doesn't solve that problem. And that's where I think we are today. Yes, I don't want what happened in January 6th tried again, 
But if anyone believes, and this is my worry about what Mitch McConnell will say, oh, we took care of the voting problem in America. We passed this. No, the bigger problem remains that hundreds of thousands or millions of black voters have been knocked off the rolls in Ohio, that they are doing suppression in Florida and Georgia, long lines with no water in Georgia, horrible gerrymandering, you know, one drop box for a million people in Cleveland. Those underlying problem states are not being addressed. So if all you do is say, we're gonna recognize the results of those flawed elections for the presidential electors say, uh, sake, you can see you're not really getting to the heart of the problem, which is the attack on democracy in states. That's what these other bills would do. What worries me again is especially if Democrats say, oh, look, we kind of saw it's important to do, but this does not get at the underlying attack on democracy, by the way, which is the very reason why Mitch McConnell won't get to that other stuff. This keeps us from having to go there. Uh, um, by the way, I keep reading Josh's, I'm sorry if it seems overly partisan. I actually believe that this, I endorsed a Republican for, for Congress several months ago because he believes in democracy. And so I think we have to unite around democracy. It is patriotic. We have to find allies on both sides. But if I, I'm trying to describe this in a way of what's actually happening, if it sounds partisan, some of that's because most of the attack is obviously coming from, a, from one side of one party. Um. Would overturning Citizens United help at this point, or is there? Are yeah, there I mean, it, it would. I mean, in my book, I tried to stick with what I thought was most doable. And what happened when Hillary Clinton lost was was not not just that Trump was elected, but we lost that justice. And for that reason, I think it's going to be a long time before we see the chance to overturn Citizens United. And I just don't honestly see, and I could be wrong a constitutional amendment to change that. So here's what I'd say about the big money. The big money is funding. So one of the things I go through in the book and you, someone mentioned Alec. I wish I was the first person to detect this weaknesses in state houses, but I'm not. You know, the Koch brothers saw this years ago. Alec saw this. They've weaponized these state houses to not just be doing everything described in isolation, but they do it in concert. They, again, they learn every time. If one state passes something crazy, they all do it. The minute Dobbs went down, they're all ready to go. So the, the Citizens United allows them also to put together this massively large, well-funded infrastructure to do everything I'm talking about. That's the problem. Here's one good thing, though. And I, again, I'm an optimist. You'll see at the end of my book, I go through all the things we have to do. I go through best practices. I found more sense. Um, there's enough money on the pro-democracy side to succeed. But as I said, we have not explained to the pro-democracy side how to best spend that money. We loaded up into billions of dollars for presidential and Senate elections. And then we leave almost empty so many of the state level offices that we need to win. So the money is, I mean, look at how much, and by the way, we have to win those Senate races. I, I mean, I'll be partisan for a second. I want Tim Ryan to win. I support him. I want Val Demings to win. But we have to be smart enough to realize, and by the way, not everyone will agree with that, but that's, I'm a Democrat, I'll say that. But we also have to be smart enough to say, that's not enough. If we can take some percentage, not a huge one, of the monies that we get so excited to give to these federal candidates, and said, like I said, in Ohio, let's give 10% of it to make sure every state house seat in Ohio is contested. Every extremist is held accountable. They may not even lose that extremist, but at least someone's knocking on every door in their district explaining what they're doing. 
Uh, we have so the money on our side when it's energized is huge, bigger than the other side. But we don't apply it to all the places that lift democracy, and that's on us. Sonia just mentioned the States Project, wonderful best practice. That's what this. But here's the problem, Sonia, and it's I, I'm on I'm on calls with their giving circles almost every night. We on our the, the core mission on the side attacking democracy is state houses. We have a lot of programs like States Project and NDRC where on our side, it's kind of a side thing. And we have to make our core mission much more about States Project. And those who don't know it, States Project is taking groups of donors in largely blue states and they adopt a red state to try and win a state house that otherwise we wouldn't win. We need to make that not just a side thing, we need to have the States Project philosophy embedded in everything we do. That's not what I'm seeing yet. Uh, and, and, that really, and, and that gets us as United. We need to start bending the, the spending curve so it's not only for a few Senate races we're all talking about. Everyone who cares about democracy should also know the Democrats are only a few seats away from winning the Arizona State House. The States Project is helping on that. Only a couple of seats from winning the Michigan State House. Um, Minnesota Senate, Pennsylvania, nine seats short of the State House. And one other topic for, for this year, we have election deniers very close to being Secretary of State in Arizona, in Michigan, in New Mexico, in Nevada. And if we don't do something about that, we could win Senate seats in 22 and still lose in 24 because we have a guy named Mark Fincham who simply won't accept a loss in Arizona. So we have to look at states project type models and we have to also look at the other positions of power that impact democracy. So in addition to states project, is there any other organization or any other place you can point us to um, specifically? Yeah, I mean, I, this, I'll just mention you know, right now the state, the the organization that I'm a big fan of is the sector, the Democratic Secretary of State's organization. If you follow, by the way, if, if you if you don't like what I'm saying, you don't have to do this. If you do, follow me at David Pepper on Twitter. I'm always providing these types of best practices. If you have any questions after this about any of this, here's my email. And I, again, I go through a lot of this book. States Project is is right now. If if you have a group of people somewhere and you're and you are feeling what I'm saying. Call them up, email me, I'll make the introduction. A lot of people have formed giving circles after I've talked about them. Sister District is another one. It's not a, it's basically, if you're not a group, but you're an individual and you're frustrated, you join a chapter in your area that adopts other state house districts around the country. What these groups are doing, since we all know who Amy McGrath is running against Mitch McConnell, it's harder to know, hey, these are the seven candidates in Arizona that could flip that did well. They do all that homework for you. So, sister district and um, states project do this adoption of state house um, state houses that can where, where power can be gained. The the uh, sector state organization is called um, um, it's called DAS. It's short for Demo Demo Democratic Association of Sectors of State. In this cycle, where we have true election deniers running to run elections, I think they are very important. Let me give, thank you, Vanessa. One other thing I'm doing, and this is a, this is a model that I want to broaden. It's a, it'll sound counterintuitive for a second, but it goes, and this is, I just typed it up there. These organizations are doing great things focusing on, again, on the swing districts. I believe if we only focus on swing districts, we leave millions of people out of the conversation. And so I've created something called blueoha.org. And what this is, is a crowdfunding mechanism 
where I've convinced in only three months, I are, in four months, I already have a thousand members who are putting 10 bucks, 15 bucks, 20 bucks a month into a pack. And what Blue Ohio does is it doesn't give money to the big name or even the swing. It starts at the bottom and lifts. It's going to the people who will never get a phone call return because they're in a tough district. The ones who literally run and then look around for support and it's not there. And what we're doing is saying, okay, we have to lift, it's a bathtub model. We have to lift in those tough districts and over time raise enough money so that we create an infrastructure so people are running everywhere. And, the very, and it's a model that's building well in Ohio. You're all welcome to join. But my hope is to build it so well here that we bring it to Indiana and Florida. So everywhere in the country, we start creating infrastructure that doesn't only reward you for running in a swing district, but says we value you running everywhere. We value you knocking on doors, even in the most red district. In some cases, you may win. But even if you don't, it's so important that you're running there to start holding extremists accountable. And the very good news is without a lot of money, we already have a thousand members paying a monthly just for Ohio. Two years ago, there were 15 candidates in Ohio running for state house who didn't even have $5,000 at the end of the cycle. Because of what we raised through those 10 and $15 amounts, we've already made it so that not a single district in Ohio where someone's running will have under 5,000. We're lifting from the bottom. So we need to do the swing state, the swing district strategy, but also the bottom up strategy. So over time, we are, we are literally valuing and supporting people running everywhere. So I know you want to stay on the states and, and that is the focus. I'll go anywhere you want. Lesson. Well, but I feel sort of there's a, there's a tension because a lot of people are, are, are go-to is always the federal. And right. one of the questions, a couple of the questions group around judgeships and um, uh, it seems like the focus is a lot on the on the courts. And yeah. also, I want to ask what you think about adding seats to the Supreme Court. So you know? I, I, the court is incredibly important. And, but I want to explain why. It, it is consistent with everything I've laid out that the courts are critical. And there's a reason Mitch McConnell wants to have court. He's OK with no filibuster for court seats. The, the, the attack on democracy and the lurch towards extremism begins in the state houses, but they need the courts to uphold those laws. And these laws only a few years ago, be it Dobbs or the Voting Rights Act, would never been upheld 10 years ago. So think about the states as the, as the sword and the federal courts as the shield of those state laws. It's a one-two punch. And so they need... This court to uphold those laws, but almost every law that they are upholding that frustrates us, it didn't begin with Clarence Thomas. It started in a state house somewhere. So, of course, we need the courts. Of course, we need to scrutinize these judges. They are upholding laws that only a decade ago would never have been upheld. But in the end, they're upholding those state level laws. So think about it as that one, two punch. So, yes, we need to have federal majorities. Don't for a moment think I'm not saying we don't need to win more Senate seats. We have to. But in the end, that is still defense. What really frustrates me is we, and this will show you sort of my mindset, we lose a case like Dobbs. And of course we say, well, we have a, we have a court that's, that's upholding bad laws. And so we say, let's elect some senators to change the court over time. But what we never say is, well, let's go back to the states where they pass that indefensible law and also hold those state house people accountable. And if we don't do that, going back to my son's soccer 
soccer playing. And my guess is a lot of you have kids and grandkids who play soccer. Think of it this way. There are 10 players, 20 feet from the goal, shooting the ball at the goal. Those are the state houses. We don't try and interfere with their shot. We're the federal people in the goal trying to stop the shot. And whenever they score, which they will score if they're taking nonstop shots repeatedly, we simply demand we need a better goalie. We need a better federal defense. What I'm saying is, of course, we want a federal goalie. Let's elect more senators. Let's get better judges. But we need to start challenging the shots, too. Let's go back to those states where they're passing these laws and point out that they passed a bill that required that rape victim go to Indiana. That's not popular. And what we're not doing is going back to where the shot's being taken. I believe, I, I, I'm a lawyer. I'm still a little conservative about adding seats overall. But I also believe that we continue to have uh, what's called, what's it called, asymmetric warfare. They changed the number of seats, didn't they? By only having eight for a while. And so I think the further they go, like, let's say if they do the independent state legislative do uh, doctrine or whatever, whatever. Thank you, Kitty. I appreciate that. Um, if they do that, then I think our Congress says, you want to do that? We're going full guarantee clause. We are going to pass a law that basically says a bunch of you states are no longer. If, if you're going to say that we have to respect that state legislature's opinion, then we're going to pass a guarantee clause based law saying, well, that state house is not a Republican form of government. And until it is, we're not wrecking. I mean, we need to ratchet it up. And if they continue to do what they're doing, it's attacking democracy. I do think we should be open to changing the, the court composition because the court we have today, we know is a result of years of anti-rule of law sort of positioning by the other side. Um, great. Uh, sorry, I, I keep reading the, the chat. There was a good question there. I'll, I'll let you read go it ahead. though. No, go. Uh, massive, massive, and, and Melissa Walker and Daniel Squadron will tell you this. Right now, and I want, you know, give to whoever Senate candidates you're excited about, but 20 or 30 or $40,000 can change the outcome of a state house district that, that, that Melissa Walker is raising money for through the state's project. It's a few ads in the Senate race that will be forgotten. The efficiency of giving uh, to, by the way, one other set of races that's really important right now, I, I want to mention in Ohio, once Dobbs happens and once state houses are unchecked as a gerrymandering, state Supreme Courts are central to all this because the state Supreme Court, a place like Ohio, is the last check on these out of control legislatures. But whether you're giving to the sector of state races or where you're giving to state Supreme Court or especially a state house district with 100,000 people, that $20,000 that Tim Ryan will appreciate, but goes into a few ads that will get lost, means the world to that state house candidate. When we call up one of these very red district uh, candidates and say, we have a $2,500 check for them, they've one of them cried. I mean, it's the biggest check they're ever going to get. And it allows them to have a mailer, one mailer. So the lower down you go, it's a massive difference in the, in the value of those dollars and also the value in actually changing a loss to a win. Well, thank you. We are just about out of time. I want to ask you um, a couple of lightning round questions. Okay. And uh, the first one is, what's the good news in all this? The good news is I think people are waking up to this. I, I literally wrote this book in about four months last year. Unlike other famous authors, a publisher said to me it would take a year, a year and a half to get it out. So I self-published because 
I felt like it had to get out. And I wrote it as a wake up call. And I'm not saying it's because of my book, but I think a year and a half, and I wrote it because I was like, my God, no one sees what's happening in these states where we, we continue to do the same wrong approach uh, to you know this giant problem. I do think people are starting to see more of it. There are many more people joining States Project. There are many more people joining these other things. People see the sector, the, the sector of state organization I talked about, it has far more than they've ever had. There's more attention in our, our Ohio Supreme Court race than there ever was before. So I think people are waking up to it. And I'd say that's probably the best news that, that people are seeing it to take a little bit of that back, but it's still not nearly enough. Uh, but it is, there has been, I think, some awakening to this that a year ago, I didn't sense nearly as much. And what are you reading now? Uh, I just read Horse, which was a great book. I am, I am really, really both, obsessed is the wrong word, but the parallels to our past in what's happening right now should scare all of us. And I go through this in the book. In the 1870s, there were more black registered voters in Louisiana than white. South Carolina. There were black elected officials elected all over the South. There was 40 straight years of a black member of Congress in the late 1800s. And that, that fueled a white backlash that people didn't step up enough to stop that led in 1890 and after to a massive myth of voter fraud, massive suppression through all sorts of tactics like literacy tests and grandfather clauses and violence and intimidation. And people kind of saw it. Yeah, Kitty, Kitty nailed it. Black majority. There were black Supreme Court justices and sectors of state and lieutenant governors and speakers. It was this diverse democracy that is lost. And this is why banning censoring history is so scary. It's trying to conceal all this. And at some point, the Northern Republicans knew this. And they didn't fight hard enough. Ulysses Grant, an Ohioan, one of the books behind me. So the answer is I'm reading about all this stuff all the time. Some fought it. And at some point they stopped fighting. And that's what got us Jim Crow. And that's what's got us a hundred years. And all of a sudden, by the way, by like 1910, the 140,000 black registered voters of Louisiana was down to 700. And the, and the tens of thousands of South Carolina was down to 3,000. They were gone. And all those black elected officials never elected again. If you were if you were 20 years old in 1880, black elected officials ever, if you were a black man or woman, 30 years later, you wouldn't see one the rest of your life. The high point for the rest of your life would be that Jackie Robinson played baseball. It's haunting. And what scares the hell out of me is that they saw it coming. And at some point, they stopped fighting. And to go back to Sue's question at the very beginning, in 1890, there were three major bills that came before the Congress. Two were economic, and one was to protect voters in the South, the Black voters. The economic bills passed. The 1890 Voter Protection Bill died through filibuster, and it went away. And ever since, that's when they attacked, and that's when Jim Crow happened. And what's the reason, again, I read all this stuff. It's like Barack Obama you know, telling everyone to read the banned books. The danger of censorship of our history is it's to blind us from what I just described. So we don't see that what's happening now around violence and intimidation and all the voter suppression tactics is precisely what happened in our past. And what was the instigating moment now versus all those black voters in Louisiana? It was Barack Obama winning. 
And it wasn't just him winning in his, his in the fact that he made history. It was that his coalition was large and diverse. And that has prompted everything since it's been the same thing as it was more than a century ago. This fierce backlash that a diverse democracy scares some people. And whether it's purging voters or gerrymandering or other things, they'll do whatever they can to stop that from happening. And banning history and censoring, you know, all the great people who've written about this stuff, Toni Morrison in fiction or historians, if that shields us from knowing that history, that's when it happens again. And so they, I'm reading every book I can on that and in my whiteboards or anything else, trying to explain that this is what we are in a battle for democracy. That's the same battle that has been fought again and again. And, and the history also tells us what to look out for. And the last thing I'll say is history has a very valuable lesson for us. And it's not that there are people attacking democracy so they win. There's always been people attacking democracy. They're always are there. And they take different parties over different times. We was Democrats in the 1800s. The, that does not determine the outcome of the battle. What determines the outcome of the battle is how fiercely those fighting for democracy are fighting. That's what determines the outcome. That's why John Lewis won. That's why the suffragists won. Are they persistent? Do they keep fighting? And the lesson, painful lesson from the past is if that side doesn't fight hard or doesn't see it, that's when they lose. So when people ask me all the time, is it too late? Is it too late? It's only too late if we're not in the fight. If we're in it, we can succeed, but we've got to move forward. And we have to see what we have to see clearly what exactly what we're fighting against and then adjust accordingly. That's what I'm reading. <laughs> Thank you so much, David. This was just an amazing and inspiring talk. Um, the uh, next event for Big Tent uh, is October 25th at noon. Jen DeVore, the president and co-founder of Better Civics based in Philadelphia, will join us for a tent talk. And uh, I, we will send out um, an email summarizing some of the suggestions that you offered. And we can't thank you enough for Wonderful. coming and joining us. Have a good day. Thanks evening. so much. I really appreciate all that you're doing. Thank you. And don't forget, you have a massive footprint. So much good can come of it. Thanks, everybody. Take care. Thank you. Bye.